and welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. On the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge-Muncie community, I'm Blaze Bryant. And I'm Bria Barthel. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with a look at Congress's recent push to require railroad unions to agree to a new contract with a perspective from a longtime labor activist. Then we hear from Reshma Sajani, frequent author and the organizer of the Marshall Plan for Moms, about her initiative to support gender equity for working moms. Later on, we hear about the testing of Hudson River water by the, the Water Justice Lab from Doug Reed, one of the citizen scientists involved in the effort. After that, we turn to food. Blue Mountain Center in the Adirondacks provides a space for activist retreats and conferences, and food is central to their concept. Finally, retired meteorologist Hugh Johnson joins us for our weekly look at climate and weather. This time we'll talk about tornadoes in the Southeast, rain in California, and upcoming weather here in the Capital Region. But first, here are some headlines. Great to have you back, Bria. The New York State Thruway Authority had a meeting at their Albany headquarters on Monday. They continued rate, I'm sorry, they are considering raising the cost of driving on the thruway in 2024. People who have an easy pass can see a 5% hike. Meanwhile, a driver who does not have an easy pass, they could see a 75% hike. Capital Region drivers and lawmakers said the thruway authority is punishing the wrong people in a statement. The authorities said they do not receive any funding from the state or local or from state or local tax dollars to support aging bridges and roads. The search continues for 14-year-old Samantha Humphrey of, of Schenectady. It's been 10 days since her mother reported her missing. She was last seen in Riverside Park in Schenectady with an ex-boyfriend on November 25th. WNYT has reported that the two got into a fight there. That was the last anyone has seen or heard Samantha. Her mother, Jacqueline Humphrey, confirmed last week that a jacket found at the park was indeed Samantha's. A federal judge has drawn bribery and fraud charges against former New York Lieutenant Governor Brian Benjamin. Instead, Benjamin is only facing records falsification charges. Judge J. Paul Ogan said the prosecution could not find any specific examples of bribery. Benjamin resigned after he was arrested in April. A new Siena College research poll shows that New Yorkers have not been this excited about the holidays in the past 15 years. The poll said 73% of New Yorkers are either very or somewhat excited. That's up from 65% last year. And that's it for the headlines. You are listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute your time and talents, go to mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, or call us. 518-272-2390. For our first story, longtime labor leader and retired founder and director, 
of the Workforce Development Institute, and Murphy talks with Moses Nagel about the Railroad Workers Union challenges and the current climate for organized labor. Last week, Congress, at the urging of President Biden, voted to block the Railroad Workers of America from striking. Despite the fact that workers currently have no paid sick leave and in the face of massive profits by the rail carriers in the last years, Congress voted to impose a tentative contract deal that had been reached in September, but which four key unions had refused to join. A separate bill guaranteeing seven paid sick days per year failed. Last Thursday on our program, Mark Dunlay spoke to Nick Hurst of the Rail Workers of America about the specifics of their contract negotiations and labor actions, including a call for public ownership of the railways. You can find that discussion on the Sanctuary website. Today, I'm talking to Ed Murphy, the retired founder and director of the Workforce Development Institute. His group was affiliated with the New York State AFL-CIO, and he has spent his career working with government and organized labor. Thank you for talking with me today. What are your thoughts about the events that have developed in the last week or so? Well, I think the the first thing that comes to mind is the shock that they don't have the um, sick leave benefits that most workers have in America. And people who work in dangerous work, and especially with COVID, and they travel to not be able to be with their families or or get to uh, doctors, that's you know that's the first thing that shocks me, and and so to be thinking about these these workers not having the benefits that most everybody in, in America has on some level uh, is, is a shocking thing. And the second thing is the idea that Congress would override the contracting procedures and the labor democracy of of the union members who decided to turn down a contract. I think that creates an ethical and political debt for all Americans to now come back and make sure these workers get the benefits and the working conditions that they need. And I think we have a responsibility to influence the railroad system to make sure that the workers uh, get their benefits. And it also points out two things for me. The, the importance of the workers to the economy of the United States that that the, Cong- the president and Congress would override these provisions. Uh, so there's a debt that's owed to them. And then the second thing that's come out is the importance of the railroads to the supply chain. And I think the trucking industry has said they need hundreds of thousands of uh, more trucks on the road if they, if they don't have the rail system operating. So there's a, there's a larger context is where is the rail system in American economy compared to countries like um, Germany and Japan and places where the rail system was destroyed during World War II, ours wasn't, and we have not really built that infrastructure up to where it should be. We've heard the rail carriers say that the massive profits that they've seen have not been because of the contributions of labor, and therefore it is fair that they don't share them with the union. For perspective, the biggest rail carriers have paid over $196 billion in stock buybacks and dividends to investors since 2010. But we also hear that the disruption of a work stoppage would cause massive damage to our economy. It seems contradictory, right? 
Right. You know, the, the key thing here is that you can't operate a system like a rail without the workers and without the workers putting themselves at risk and putting their families at risk. And what they're asking now is that the workers continue to leave their families at risk because if they don't have health care benefits or they don't have the, uh, the sick time uh, to take care of themselves, they can't take care of their families. So uh, I think there's an immoral issue here as well as uh, a political and management issue that, that has to be dealt with. And we need to get Congress to pass the bill that gives them the six days that they need. That bill failed in the Senate last week. And some people have said that perhaps the rail workers and organized labor more broadly has tied itself too closely to the Democratic Party rather than relying on collective action, etc., such that when the party doesn't support them, like in the case of this bill, they're limited in possible responses. What do you think? Well, I think that the, uh, there's an interesting point here that Republicans who voted for, you know, the sick leave bill and came over to do this. There's, I mean, labor really has to be taking care of its own interests and not be owned by one party. And I think that's what's really, really important here is that, uh, and I think the, the American people need a refresher, which we're all getting out of this situation about the, the value of people who work for a living and, and how what we want for ourselves, especially around the holidays, is you know, is certain things to be able to buy things for our family and, and to do things. And you can't do that unless the workers are capable of going to work and do that. So I think the, the two things there is you can't be owned by one party and it's got to get off just this and look to the American people holding their legislators accountable to now go back and take care of, uh, of the workers. What are your predictions or hopes for what happens next? My hope is that the uh, people who are re- reading the newspapers or watching this on TV or listening to uh, the show that is being done now will react and talk to their legislators and say, you got to go back and take care of these people. You can't just avert a crisis. And you've got to be thinking long-term about the rail system in the United States. Uh, you've got to continue to support that. And the Amtrak people would have been affected because the trains are running on freight rails, and you can't, you can't expect uh, Amtrak to keep operating if there's a strike uh, to do that. So we need to build the train system in America also, for the issue of climate, we don't want to really put more trucks on the road uh, at this point. And the more we have a rail system and then build that out into a light rail system uh, that we can, we can have locally, we're going to be better off. And the sooner we can get some of these uh, uh, cars off the road and trucks off the road, uh, we're all going to be better off as far as climate goes is the health care of, of the workers and the families and the extent to which uh, we have things like bus garages, uh, school bus garages, and they're, they're warming up their buses in the winter. You get a higher degree of asthma in uh, places like Harlem and, and 
places in the capital region where the school buses are. And I think the more we can get to clean energy and, and strengthen our rail system, the better we're all going to be. be. My last question is about the moment we are in. This is a big story right now, as well as a record action of graduate students in California and labor actions by Starbucks and Amazon workers have been in the news recently. Is this a real phenomenon? What do you think is happening? Well, I'm actually I'm happy about this. this is, uh, we'll have, like you mentioned, Starbucks and all. Um, a lot of people are realizing that they have to have collective action to really protect themselves because... With, with Trump and with other people who really want to uh, eliminate the power of the people, it's important that people come together and do this. And I think people are open. I think their hearts and their minds are more open these days than they've been in a long time because we realize we've come that close to losing democracy in America and people are coming out in different forms last thing is the labor movement has to adjust. You know, part of what we were doing at WDI was helping uh, the labor movement adjust to uh, new trends, environmental trends, more work, women in the workplace, and that's always going to be a challenge uh, to any institution, and labor's gone through this through all its history to incorporate minorities into the unions and to get out front. Well, the beauty of labor is that it is willing to get involved in these things. And even if it goes slower than people want, it's willing to use its people and its political power to make some of these changes. And this is one of those special moments where leaders of organized labor need to step up and think even more in broader terms. Ed Murphy, thank you for joining me today. For Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Moses Nagel. Thanks, Moses, for calling that to our attention. For our earlier story on the railroad contracts, see our website. We'll continue to follow this rather appalling story in future segments. Blaze? For our next story, Lavender talks with Rishma Sujani, author and founder of the Marshall Plan for Moms, about her experiences and insights as a woman with or as a woman of color. So, hello listeners, I'm Lavender, and I'm here with Reshma Sujani, a leading activist, author, Yale Law School graduate, and founder of Girls Who Code and Marshall Plan for Moms, just to name a few things. Reshma, thank you so much for being here. It is truly an honor to have this opportunity to interview you. Oh, I'm so excited, Lavender, to be talking to you. Great to be here. Awesome. So um, I've got a list of questions, but feel free to um, add anything you want if it's not directly related. Um, And they're pretty broad. So first of all, what is something that you wish everyone would consider or do more in general? Mm, Fail, fail more. You know, failure is like a privilege. And like, I think about like when I lost my first congressional race, like if I didn't have that experience, I never would have started Girls Who Code. And it taught me like all the things that like I talk myself out of or I think that I can't do. And so in my life, failure has been such a gift, uh, such an opportunity for me to grow. And, you know, I talk a lot about how we raise girls to be perfect. And so we don't get opportunities to fail or to take risks or to like color outside the lines. And I think men get that all the time, you know, and that's why you see them starting companies doing podcasts, like launching businesses, running for office. And, and and like failure doesn't break them. 
And so for me, like the gift I would give everybody is to like have as many opportunities to fail because that's how you be, that's how you learn. Like that's how you become great. That's awesome. I love that. And that you said that we're not perfect. And that reminds me of your, your podcast slash book, <laughs> Brave Not Perfect, which is again, just one of the many things that you've done. Uh, one of your many accomplishments. Yeah. So that's a great point. Okay. Second question. How do you wish people would treat you differently? And if there's a specific experience that you can speak to, to answer this question, could you share that with us? Hmm. How do I wish people would treat me differently? You know, sometimes I feel like as a South Asian woman, as a Brown woman, that people don't see me. Like in, in like if I'm walking down the street, I often get bumped into, or if I'm like standing in a line, people will cut in front of me. And mm -hmm. Yeah, I, w I wish that people would see me. I like that. Yeah, that's a good answer. Especially as a, a person of color, I completely understand. A woman of color, specifically. Mm -hmm. It happens to me a lot, you know what I mean? And I'm not that short, you know, I'm five foot four. <laughs> there's there's something to that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're five four. That's, that's my goal height. I'm a couple inches shorter than you, but that's like my ideal. I've, I could just grow a couple more inches, but even, even with your physical presence, there's still, there's a lack of, you know, seeing you. Yep. Yeah. So I guess somewhat related to that. Um, the next question I had was in these trying times, which are words that seem almost meaningless now, it can be easy to feel discouraged. So I was wondering what keeps you going? I mean, you, like all of the amazing young people I've taught at Girls Who Code, the things that you're doing, the things that you're building, the opportunities that you have, like the way that you're making the world a better place. Like I always say, it's like, you're healing us, you're saving us, you're see making us see our truth. And so I feel that gives me a lot, like the next generation gives me a lot of hope, like a lot of hope. I mean, even just thinking about the, the past elections, it's like, you know, I always say like, you know, it's like our children are acting like leaders and our leaders are acting like children. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's, you know, you think about the last, even the midterm elections, it was young people that went to the polls when they took away our reproductive rights and said, yeah, hell no. Mm -hmm. And so I just have a lot of hope from what I'm seeing in the next generation. Yeah, totally. And then I do have uh, one more broad question but uh before i get to that do you want to speak about your biggest thing right now which i believe is marshall plan for moms <laughs> yes i'd love to so i am like on a mission yeah i think it's like you can't finish the fight for gender equality if you can't if you don't finish the fight for working moms and you saw that with your mom right and how much yeah. how much she did and how much lack of support that working moms have so like you know we live in a country that doesn't have industry it doesn't have paid leave the only industrialized nation that doesn't have paid leave. So 25% of women, mostly women of color, go back to work 10 days after having a baby. Like nurses, teachers, women working in retail, it's like they don't get time, they don't get paid time off. And so they put their vacation days together and their sick days and they scramble it. And that's not right. That's inhumane. Absolutely. You know, we have we are the only industrialized nation that doesn't have affordable childcare. Like we should have universal childcare. The vast majority, 40% of parents are in debt right now because of preschool. And, you know, more people pay more for their childcare than their mortgage. And it's the reason why people don't want to have kids because it's just too expensive. And then, you know, the pay inequity, you know, the minute you become a mom, you lose between 20 and 30% of your salary. 
it's like we immediately think that if you're a mom, that you're not you're not committed to your job or your career. And so I want to change that because in in the cycle of this, like I saw this during the pandemic with my with with the girls or code students, like you know, during the pandemic, a lot of my a lot of my students' mothers were essential workers. And so instead of going to college and majoring in computer science, they had to drop out to take care of their siblings. And so it's like, you know, because we don't have a structure of care, we're not letting girls learn and reach their fullest potential. So the entire like two generations of women, you know, are again, not being able to get out of poverty, not being able to march up into the middle class, not because they're not prepared, qualified, or able, but because we have a system that keeps pulling them down. And I want to fix that. Absolutely. So how can people get involved? I mean, I'm sure all the moms who would be listening to this are like, yeah, absolutely. I'm on board. So what do they do next? Go to marshallplanformoms.com, sign up. Um, you know, we're building a mom's army. Uh, so look, look for more on that, you know, get engaged, you know, get engaged in a form vote, you know, and then, and I always say to, I always say to working women, it's like, moms, like pick one thing that you're going to change, whether it's something about at home, whether it's something about your employer and like, and commit to that. Because part of the problem is, is I think, and I say this as a mom, is like, I, I don't, I think I'm a martyr. Like, I don't think I deserve anything. And it's the way that we have treated moms in our culture, like childcare, your personal problem, you figure it out. Half the daycares are shut, uh, shut down. Oh, well, you know what I mean? Yeah. You're pregnant and, oh, sorry, no stool for you to sit down. No, 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 no breastfeeding center. It's like, you're just, we treat them. We treat moms like dirt. And even though we should be treating them like queens. And so like now's the moment and the time, I think, again, in this period where, you know, it's so interesting, Lavender, that like we're forcing birth in a country that has no paid leave, no affordable childcare, high infant mortality rate, high rates of black women dying in childbirth, right? And we think that that's okay. And so, and it's not. And so now's our moment, I think, to fight, you know, not just fight for our reproductive rights and our access, but like, again, whether or not to become a parent is the most foundational economic choice you will make. And we should let people have the right to choose for themselves and we should live in a society that supports them when they make that choice. Absolutely. And um, of course I follow you on Instagram and you post a lot of shocking statistics, like some of the ones you said on this call right now. And, you know, it's, it's really incredible. And uh, so for those listening, you can also follow Reshma on social media, pretty easy to find just her name. <laughs> mm-hmm. And um yeah, she posts a lot of a lot of really insightful, insightful information that's really eye-opening and and shocking. And then also what about what about to the men in our lives, to our fathers, our brothers, our husbands, our sons? Mm-hmm. What would what do you want to say to them? We need you in solidarity. You know, we need you to do more caregiving work. Two-thirds of the caregiving work in the world is done by women. It's why we don't have the free time to take care of our own mental health you know, much less focus on our potential. So we need to do more laundry, you know, more, more caretaking, more, you know, more, more time so we can have time. You know, we need you to make this an issue that you, there's so many men I know that were raised by single mothers. You know, my first three big donors were, were, were men who were raised by single moms. And so, you know, the work that women do. So stand with us in solidarity. And if you have a position of power to influence change, like, you work at a company, like push them to subsidize childcare. And, or, or if you're a man who, you know, just had a baby, take your paid leave. 
You know what I mean? Let's make it gender neutral. Let's normalize it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And yeah, like you said, just taking more time to help out. I, you know, I think women's time isn't respected as much as men's time. And then women of colors and queer women, their time isn't, isn't as respected. Nope. It's not. And, and it's why right now we have, we're burned out. We're pill popping. Alcoholism has increased. Like we're depressed, anxious, stressed because of that. It's because of not having that time. Yes. Okay. Well, I know you've got a lot of important work to get to. Mm -hmm. Thank you for talking to me. It was so great. And I'm so proud of you. Oh, thank you. That you're doing. You got to, I will always be in your corner. So, and grateful for you for using your voice, you know, to lift people up. Thank you. Well, if listeners only remember one thing from this segment, what do you want them to take away? I want you to join the fight to fight for moms. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much, Reshma. I really appreciate your time. Take care. Talk to you soon. Okay. Good luck. Bye. Bye. Thanks to Lavender for a look at yet another social problem in the U.S. For details on this specific activity, visit marshallplanformoms.com. Yes, dot com. For links to information on Reshma Sajani's many books and other activities, see this segment's description on our website. I'm Blaze Bryant. You are listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy. WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy. WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady. WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany and streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for er, English. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. Easy for you to say. And I'm Bria Barthel. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend. Find- You and they can find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Now, on to our next story. Next, citizen scientists collect water from the Hudson River watershed to regulate the health and our water. Um, Water Justice Lab, a collaboration between Sanctuary and Riverkeeper has been testing the waters from some of these citizen citizen scientists, including Doug Reed. Producer Max Carmack interviewed. I'm sorry. Producer Max Carmack interviewed Doug about his involvement, which will go far better than that Reed did. Hi, Max. Good to be here. Can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I'm a woodworker slash environmental educator living in the upper Hudson River watershed. And I've been here for about 50 years. Wow. I got interested in rivers uh, about 30, 35 years ago. Um, a tributary called the Battenkill, which flows into the Hudson. And... Um, with a bunch of friends, started a river watch program. That's awesome. And it grew from 
five high schools in the Baton Hill watershed to dozens of schools up and down the Hudson from the Adirondacks to Manhattan. With a lot, a lot of more people, a lot more teachers, schools, environmental groups, citizen scientists. And we started working with the state in the late 90s. They caught wind of us and said, we need program like this. And they uh, worked with us, started giving us grants and contracts that went Very for cool. about 15 years. Now I'm a That's volunteer. A I'm retired and I'm a volunteer for the same groups. Wow. Well, what an awesome journey. And for our listeners, just so they know, we're here to talk about the river. We're here to talk about water quality and Doug, as you've heard, is, is a complete expert in this. So we've heard a little bit about you, Doug. And how about you give us a little bit more specifically about your role as a citizen scientist? Then I know some of that work's been with Riverkeeper in the uh, water quality monitoring project in the Upper Hudson. So could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I was uh, about seven or eight years ago, Riverkeeper came up to the Upper Hudson and uh, recruiting volunteers to collect water samples and then return them to their lab on the boat and also a lab farther down river. There were about, I don't know, half a dozen, 10 volunteers and right. we're still there. But a couple of years ago, uh, Riverkeeper wanted to move the lab on shore and involve more community activists like the Sanctuary for Independent Media Nature Lab in Troy. Mm -hmm. So we started bringing samples directly to that lab three or four years ago. Cool. And it's just grown since then. So can we talk about that process a little bit? You said, so it started, you know, with, I guess, a water base, like a boat. You'd actually take them from the river, bring them to the boat. So you guys have like a... It's a real relay team effort. Um, backing up from when these samples needed to get into the incubator right. for processing and analysis, we had a six-hour window. So from the very headwaters up in the Adirondacks to Waterford, across the river wow. Troy. Uh, we had to get it all done by then. It was a real uh, quick dance. What amazing effort. Yeah. Yeah. It, was, it took some coordination, practice, but it got better and better. And the, the lab at that time was on the patrol boat, the Riverkeeper. Right. And the pilot was doing all the processing and analysis on the boat for ourselves. Wow. And that's, that's so then too much. Right. So then this changed to be on the shore, like you were saying. Yes. Yes. And they were looking for shore support all along anyway. So. Uh, and that's where the nature lab became involved. Yes. And the nature lab was started. Um, I, I think independently of the Riverkeeper effort uh, and they, they connected. And um, Rebecca, Rebecca Martin at Riverkeeper came up and offered the Sanctuary for 
independent media a right. partnership. And it's so from there. When you guys are taking these samples, what are you looking for in the samples when they're being We're collecting processed? Just a small bottle. Here's here's a example. So it's like about like a water bottle sized yeah. Yeah. sample. So um, we're given some guidance and, and training how to collect it. It's a quick and easy protocol for how to collect a good water sample. Is it more of a surface or you guys have to go to a certain depth? Below the surface. We have a, a pole that we attach the bottle to. And you dip the bottle in and let it fill three times. Rinse it out. And then the fourth time, you grab the sample. Bring it out of the water with the pole, put the cap on it, keep it out of the sun, put it in a cooler. It was important to keep these samples out of sun and cool because this was a test of the presence of a bacteria in the water. Bacteria right. called Enterococcus. So that was the way to handle this water sample. So what's the bacteria's name again? Enterococcus, C-O-C-C-U-S. It is a Enterococcus. coliform bacteria, right. which is easy and quick to uh, process and analyze. Yeah. And it, so is that in presence yeah. of, you know, a, a harmful bacteria in the water if you were to swim there or gotcha. take a gulp of water? This is something right. uh, we want to know about. Yes, this makes sense. So those samples essentially help you guys determine, you know, what corrective actions need to be taken and, and where those efforts have to, is that like, so when you guys, you have the data from the samples, how is that being put into action? It goes up on Riverkeeper's website, Upper Hudson Water Quality Project. And within a few days or a week, the results from our collection are posted. And there's a very easy way to see if the water is unsafe to swim in. Okay. When the bacteria counts reach a certain threshold, it's deemed by Environmental Protection Agency to be unsafe to swim in. Gotcha. And so wh why do you think this community science is so important? And how do you feel that it, you have agency in the process. Why is it important? Um, well, it's important to know if you were going to go swim, the water may look clean and, and perfectly warm and inviting, but you can't see this bacteria. Right. The dog doesn't care what the bacteria is. The kids right. don't care. Uh, they're swimming. It's fun. But there's a lurking uh danger in there if you can't see it and it's high and you could get sick right and swallowing a little water so why because people do go to the river without knowing this without knowing the danger of swimming without knowing the danger of eating the fish which may be not eating that bacteria but other pathogens and, and heavy metals the more you know where you live, where you're, uh, what you're looking at, the better. 
Yeah, I totally agree. Protect the water. If you think this is polluted, you can ask why. Well, why can't I swim here? Now I want to make sure that this water is safe. And you start asking more questions. You build uh, friendships and connections with agencies from you know agencies that are charged with protecting this water to right. your neighbors and, and friends yeah that's awesome so it's, it's cool to hear about your experience with riverkeeper and also you know hearing how the nature lab has gotten involved with all this and it's i think it's it is it's so important that we're taking these samples because without that we wouldn't know about what is lingering or happening in our local you know waterways so i'm curious to hear what your hopes are for the future of water quality on the hudson river my hopes are that it will get cleaner all the time and more people will be interested in protecting and caring for it in some cases it means not going to the river and the river becomes uh, a shared resource for more people. Now, is the river getting cleaner? Yeah, it is, it's, but it's taking decades. Right. You imagine 50 years ago, what the water was like around Troy and Albany, you can see a huge difference. Doug, thank you so much. I really appreciate your outlook on this and i couldn't agree more that you know even though the progress is happening at a slow speed it's so important thanks to our new volunteer producer max cormack for this look at the water testing being conducted by citizen scientists blue mountain center a retreat place in the adirondack excuse me is a place for regeneration food and rest those are all central to this organization as our producer Sina Bazil Hickey spoke with the Blue Mountain Center program managers the sanctuary for independent media board and staff came up to the Blue Mountain Center up in the Adirondacks to tell me more about this center and what's going on I'm now joined by Mary BMC program manager and and I'm Ryan, also program manager here at Blue Mountain Center. How would you describe Blue Mountain Center? I would say it's this wonderful and glorified kitchen that hosts some of the greatest uh, people that you'll ever meet. So we do three major programs. We do a residency for artists, activists, composers, playwrights, visual artists. We do focus residencies for those groups and also conferences for social justice organizations. And it all, I think, revolves around the kitchen and the wonderful food and hospitality we're able to offer people. Um, and being in the middle of Adirondack Park and surrounded by 1,600 acres of wonderful nature is kind of the additional bonus to that. And also finding community with one another, I think, throughout the process of just being here is um, one of the, I think, cornerstones of BMC as well. So the walls here are filled with art from artists who have been here. 
but they don't reflect the Adirondacks. It's not like a photographer went out and photographed the woods or painted the, a bird around here. So how exactly does the production happen? Is it more uh, the way to understand the fuller process? Uh, obviously, there's different ways of utilizing this time. Perhaps you have some examples of, of how this residency worked into the larger body of artists' work. In terms of art production, it really varies. Residents will typically apply with a work plan, so a lot of them already have an idea of the kind of work and art that they want to do. And a lot of them coming here, right before coming here, will prepare kind of the basic structure of what they want to do. There are a number of residents who will come with a little bit more space. Pretty recently, we had one visual artist who did citizen science and really tapped into kind of the natural waters of this place, recorded a sound, uh, did image description based off of the images that were captured and also the sound that was captured as well. And some artists come here and they say, you know, even if their work isn't directly inspired by the space around them, just being in the beautiful nature has allowed them to kind of think about what kind of work and art that they want to produce. So it's a pretty wide range in terms of how the area relates to how they think about their work. Definitely. It's always interesting. Some people become more enamored by the, like, the surrounding like ecosystems and natural landscapes than others. Some people have, you know, paint Blue Mountain Center. Some people paint something as like banal as like the art studios itself or the barn. Some people will, um, I was just remembering those were like the microorganisms underneath the microscope from the lake that this one resident was doing, which are just so amazing to see up close. I cried a little bit. I was like, oh my God, that's there in the water. <laughs> um, so yeah, you always learn something new. Uh, if you've been working here for so long or with, with like us, me and Mary have been here for two years, you think you know the place and these artists will come and discover it again for you. So I think that's always really beautiful to see and witness. Just to keep going with that, how have your lives changed from the people who have come through these halls? I feel like you just meet so many incredible people who are engaging with the world in such like rich and sometimes like disruptive, like disruptive to the way that you previously thought about it. I always say that like my heart gets like emotionally stretched out. It's allowed me to like, you know, think and have more compassion and empathy to the world, just learning from people all the time. And, and then I think also being here, the impact of just being in this beautiful place and surrounded by wonderful people all the time is something it's hard to quantify or even talk about, but um, it definitely has made my life like richer. And um, yeah, I don't know, Mary, do you have a good way of thinking about it? I'm gonna... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's a real privilege to be in this space in, especially in our capacity, because we get to be here for longer stretches of time and meet so many groups of people and individuals. I think the way I think about how it's impacted my life is that, you know, often when we look at the state of the world today is kind of depressing for a lot of people who are even slightly aware of just everything that's going on. And for me, the privilege of being in this space is really interacting with people who have such creative thoughts and solutions and are just really driven in different ways, whether that's through their art or through their activism or both, of course in how they interact with the world and 
it really does bring me a sense of hope that I think is hard to capture when you're often isolated, especially during pandemic times. And it also allows you to kind of think about what the world and what people can really do when they have different aspects of their basic needs met. And um, that's something a lot of residents bring up, just kind of like the ways that you can further imagine what this world can be by having um, food and room provided and the space to breathe and the space to think about the work that they do. That has like a a lot of underlying commentary on there's just so much that we can't expect from people who are having to do so much more work to meet those basic needs. Mm -hmm. Do you think that way? Yeah, absolutely. Um, We've had retreats here that were very explicitly for rejuvenation, for people healing from certain things in the world. And it really just strikes a chord in so many ways when you think about the possibilities of, you know, people's imagination and creativities and willingness to really um, think beyond in so many ways when they are able to just kind of not have to think about all of the details of working a job to pay the bills and just thinking even so many people have thought about like you know being here I don't have to think about childcare. I don't have to think about groceries in the same way um, when that's all lifted they just have so much more space and To end off, you mentioned the importance of food as the center to this place. So let's talk a little bit more about the food, the kitchen at Blue Mountain Center. Yeah, um, I think, first of all, I think it's interesting to think about the region, too, in the Adirondacks. I mean, in our county, there's two full-year grocery stores that are struggling, that are local. They don't have succession plans. Um, for when they're family owned. So what happens to these grocery stores? Um, You have chains trying to move in. Um, You have 30% of everyone who's eligible for SNAP benefits enrolled. Um, And food scarcity is just a real big issue. Um, And then oftentimes it's really, we have such just like rich, abundant food access here at Blue Mountain Center. And it's interesting right now that we're like maybe like one of two like quote unquote restaurants that are open in our entire county. Um, so yeah, it, it's it's like a harsh kind of juxtaposition with the outside world. Um, and I think it goes back to what y'all were just talking about, um, about meeting people's basic needs and the warmth that kind of comes from our kitchen and how wonderful it is to A, not have to think about food, um, but then to have food prepared so lovingly by our kitchen staff um, who are, you know, many of them local Adirondackers, others coming here for this season um, who learning about our residents and care for them and are part of like our like care team um, and how, yeah, and how wonderful it is to both like be able to predict every meal to come and always uh, i've heard people talk about like you know also you don't have a lot of choice i mean we obviously we take uh consideration like dietary restrictions and preferences and things like that but to have someone else prepare food for you and not necessarily know what the meal of the night is going to be but to show up and for it to be very lovingly cooked and prepared and to be so good as and our head chef will prepare for you it's like 
and also it can be an adjustment for people if you're not used to three meals a day and reflecting on that a little bit for me it's like oh man like I, n- I never eat three meals a day when I'm not here and, and I think that is part of like the the transformation that happens I think here is just having this predictability and this rhythm of life that revolves around the kitchen and it's really fun to participate in that. I mean, as program managers, me and Mary both work a lot in the kitchen as well. We're kind of in both worlds, resident world and kitchen world. And I think it's probably one of our favorite things, even though it can be a lot sometimes in busier times of the day. But just like being a part of like the daily life and kind of using that as like a something to fall back on is important for us too, um, to kind of stay grounded. And so, yeah, I think the food here Okay, I'm hungry after hearing that segment. For Sina's earlier report on Blue Mountain Center, visit mediasanctuary.org. For more information on the center itself and its residency and conference programs for social justice activists, see bluemountainlake.org. Now with us is retired meteorologist Hugh Johnson. Hey, Hugh, hope you had a great week. I did. How about you, Blaze? Well, hey, it, you know, not too bad. Can't complain. Uh, let's start no out one, with... No one listens uh, to you anyway, right? <laughs> yes, yes. Let's start out with what was going on with the tornadoes in the south. Yes, there was an outbreak of tornadoes on the uh, on the 29th and 30th. Uh, not as bad as last year's December 10th to 11th. We talked about that on the radio. I remember that, but it wasn't quite as bad as that. But still, 24 tornadoes. Two deaths, uh, three injuries. Uh, I'm really, I'm really thankful there weren't a lot more because it happened in the late evening hours. And do you realize when we get tornadoes in the evening, your chances of of, of dying are 25 percent higher, maybe because you either can't see them or you're asleep when they happen. And even if you have a a radio or whatever, uh, you know, just your reaction time is slower. But anyways, this was a, a pretty bad. This is the most tornadoes in November. There were more tornadoes in November than any month since June. So the question comes to, uh, is is this something that's part of climate change? Again, you cannot take one event and and say it's climate change. But what we do know is the air masses are getting warmer, wetter. And those are two things that are important for formation of tornadoes. You also put in shear in the atmosphere. The wind direction changes and the speed changes, and that causes the, the spin that can uh, help produce a tornado. So all these things uh, do account for the fact that in, in climate change, you have a more strong jet stream and you have warmer air to work with. So it is very, it's looking like there are going to be more of these kind of outbreaks a little bit more of the time, percentage, you know, creasing upwards as we go in time. So yeah, very bad situation, but it could have been a lot worse as far as the deaths. Hi, Hugh, it's Bria here. Uh, Do the tornadoes or the jet stream changes, the other pieces you mentioned, relate to the fact that California finally got some rain? Yeah, in a way, Bria, it does. Um, We've had a jet stream that's had an interesting configuration. Uh, We've had a trough in the west near California, and they've been bringing storms in and bringing uh, San Clemente had a a couple inches of rain at the very end or the very beginning of December in a couple days time. And that really, that's good news because it's helping to alleviate the potential for wildfires. I think it was this time last year we were talking about wildfires in California. And we haven't had as many because it has been rainier. 
And so the jet stream is dipping south and then it's taking a quick curve up across the country, we call uh, across the continent and staying to our north. And that's why we've been on the warm side of these storms and not been getting any snow. We've been getting rain. So uh, again, that's that, and, and that, that that dip in the jet stream was was what uh, responsible for that severe tornado outbreak. Very strong jet stream pulling in the warm air, producing the shear, and voila, you have the tornadoes, and they occurred at night. Fortunately, we get very few of them here in our area at night. That's that's the good news. <laughs> Hugh Johnson with Bria Barthel, myself, Blaze Bryant here on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Does it make a difference in terms of the tornado's impact, whether it's during the day or at night? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it really is more dangerous. Well, I mean, generally speaking, the strongest and most powerful tornadoes are in the, in the late day at the maximum heating. But they were these were e, some EF2s and I think even briefly an EF3, which is a EF3 is considered a violent tornado. Anything EF3 or higher and EF2 is, is significant. So we have plenty of those in that. And again, at night, you just don't you, know, you don't have you don't see them. And if you're asleep, you're obviously going to react slower. If, if there's a warning in your area, you might. It might take you a few moments to wake up and figure out what's going on. Then you, you know, where do you go at night? In the daytime, you might have a, a better plan. At night, you're like, gee, everything's closed and it's scary. So, I yeah, nighttime tornadoes are nothing to. They can be very serious. Well, they are very serious. So, besides tornadoes, it seems like there's also been a pickup just in general in wind of late. What's going on with that? That's true, and that's certainly true in our area. That's that's all part of this very strong jet stream that's cutting across the country, lifting north and pulling. And we're be, we're been pretty close to thermal a thermal contrast between colder air to the north and west, especially up towards the late Great Lakes and warmer air over us and south. And that produces a strong jet stream and fast moving low pressure areas, which can change the pressure quickly and produce the wind. And that has been the the, fact, the theme since uh, you know last second half of November going into uh, early December here, and that will probably stay that way. Although the next couple of days the storm's going to be a little different. It's going to be a little, little slower moving, and we'll actually get a little more rain out of it and less wind. So I guess that's a trade off. But yeah, it has been. I agree, and that's kept me off the bike even on days that are something would seem relatively mild, but the wind is just annoying. <laughs> Well, the the wind is annoying, it's cold, it's really anything but pleasant. And, of course, the million-dollar Mother Nature question, how much of this does it have to do with climate change? Yeah, again, you know, a vigorous jet stream is definitely part of what could be part of climate change. The warming, the air is more anomalously warm further north than it would be in the past. So you you bring this warm air in contrast to even... Even though it might not be quite as cold as it was in the good old days, it's still plenty of cold to cause a strong contrast in the atmosphere, producing low pressure, the strong jet stream, and uh, more wind. By the way, on November 30th, thinking back to November 30th, we had a cold front go through about five. My lights flickered. Um, I don't think the winds were that strong in my house, but at the airport, they officially clocked a 63-mile-hour wind, which is the strongest wind in the modern era of keeping records at the airport. But I do have to point out that there was a storm in 1950, long before any of us were around, even me, that produced unofficially stronger winds. It was a, it was called the Great Appalachian Storm, but they don't consider that to be, it was a slightly different uh, 
instrument and so forth. But, you know, it, it, that 63-mile wind gust is very brief, but it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty interesting that that is the strongest, certainly, in modern times for November in Albany. So I'm glad that the wind is dying down a little bit for the next few days. You mentioned rain. Yeah. Anything else in the forecast for the week? Well, we, go, we are looking further ahead. Uh, and a little subtle change because that trough that was out to our west is, is shifting a little further east. And it might start becoming the, the jet stream will go a little further to our east, too. And it might allow some colder air to work into the whole thing. So next week, we'll see. There might be a, a tendency for the storms to be colder to have more cold air to work with. And we might be looking at either snow or, or a wintry mix or uh, a mix uh, to rain. But it looks like we'll have to definitely keep an eye on the potential for some accumulating snow or hopefully not ice, but it is possible. It, it, this looks more wintry next week. It looks colder. So this week we get off with the rain. So if you're like me, you know, you don't really care for the snow, that's fine. But next week it could get more interesting. All right. Well, Hugh, uh, we will leave it there. Hugh Johnson, retired National Weather Service meteorologist. Have a great week, and we will catch up you with too. you next week. Thank Absolutely. you very much. Dude. That bye does bye. it. You, thank you, Hugh. Take care. That does Good it talking with you, Hugh. our show here. This is Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Blaze Bryant. And I'm Bria Barthel. Our engineer, as always, is the incredible Cena Bazila Hickey. We want to thank all of the volunteers who made this episode possible. Other contributors to today's episode are Moses Nagel, Max Carmack, and Lavender. This program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community, for the community, and is supported by independent donations. If you value independent media, consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer, uh, by going to mediasanctuary.org. You can also find out information there about volunteering on the show. And we want to hear from you. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Media Sanctuary. Send us an email, hmm at mediasanctuary.org. You can even give us a call, 518-272-2390. Tune in every weekday at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local stories or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org, where you can also find full stories and individual or full episodes and individual stories. Also available on demand and on most podcast platforms. Again, mediasanctuary.org. For Bria Barthel and Cena Bazila Hickey, I'm Blaze Bryant. We appreciate you listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine.